the talk this evening has two parts. The first part is a song. And the second part is me talking. Can you hear me? This song is called Every Living Thing is Vulnerable. And um, in the part of the song where it talks about singing, please think of that as a metaphor for anything that we do, as large as our life's work or as small as a single moment, with the intention to end suffering. Created with care over thousands of years, beauty lurks in the eyes and the hooves of a deer. But beauty's not seen by a pack of dolls who pull you down into the stream. Now you lie in the creek as still as the rocks. I watched you drown and I did not stop you. You were on your way, and it seemed to me to be kinder than the man with the gun. But I sang for you, though you did not hear. And I sang to the tree spirits, asking them to release your fear. Every living thing is vulnerable. I'm powerless to change that. Still I sing for you. The child comes to school all battered and bruised by our culture's obsession with things. Learning young not to look for peace in his heart but in what the external world brings. Now you sit in the classroom, facing the wall, headed straight for disaster, we're letting you fall. You'll bring down a piece of our world when you go. So I offer you one of the life rafts I know, and I sing with you. Though you may not hear, we sing for your spirit. May it rise above fear. Every living thing is vulnerable. I'm powerless to change that. Still I sing with you. My mind runs wild as water, and the pain in me goes deep. Sometimes I lash out at those I love and cry out in my sleep. If I hurt you, please forgive me. When I'm crying, will you hold me? When I'm dying, and on the day I die, will you sing for me? 
Because if I do, you will comfort my fear. I don't care if you're in tune. The kindness in your voice comes through. Will you sing for every living thing is vulnerable? We're powerless to change that. We will sing for you. Thank you so much, Eve. So this evening, I want to talk about the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva is the mythical, almost, an archetypal and very ordinary being who connects um, inner and outer liberation. It's a very uh, powerful traditional model, and I think it's a very powerful model for us in this program. Because in a way, uh, everyone here is a bodhisattva, is a being who is dedicated both to inner transformation and to outer transformation. So I want to talk a little bit about the historical figure of the Bodhisattva, but mostly about the core qualities of the Bodhisattva, because these are really the ones that we're interested in developing, further maintaining, focusing on. And I just want to say that um, it's a privilege to be in this role of speaking. And I often think to myself as I speak, Uh, this guy is saying some things that you should listen to, meaning I should listen to him. I should listen to what this person is saying. There's some, sometimes some things that I can really learn from, you know, and um, so <laughs> that sort of uh, comes through in this role, but it's really, uh, I, I think to myself sometimes, yeah, I should, that sounds really good, really, so do it. <laughs> So I'll just, just to say that. So literally, the bodhisattva means the being or sattva connected with awakening for bodhi. And it's especially developed in Mahayana tradition. But we have the bodhisattva in the Theravada tradition and the early tradition, and it was more understood as the many, many beings in their various lives on the way to becoming Buddha. And so you can read the Jataka tales of the past lives of the Buddha, and it says, in this life, the Bodhisattva was a tiger. 
In this life, the Bodhisattva was a monkey and so forth. There are times when a figure who was a Bodhisattva said, I vow to be a fully awakened Buddha. And it took another thousand or so lifetimes in the, in the tradition. In the teachings at Spirit Rock and in the Theravada tradition, we don't talk so much about uh, the Bodhisattva. We talk more the figure in Theravada tradition is the Arhat, the fully enlightened being. And sometimes it's said by Mahayana, there are these polemics which uh, between Mahayana and Theravada, which I remember one friend said, when we bring Buddhism to this continent, maybe we'll leave those polemics in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But in any case, the, the fully developed figure of the Bodhisattva comes in the traditions of first in India, but in the Mahayana, and then found in Tibet, and China, and Japan, and Vietnam, and other Mahayana countries. And they're both these uh, quite archetypal figures and also very ordinary figures. So we have the figure of Avalokitesvara. Some of you know the Bodhisattva of Compassion, the Dalai Lama, who is um, in San Francisco, as many of you know. Today, yesterday, and tomorrow, Messiah is going to go down and see the Dalai Lama when we finish. He is said to be the manifestation of compassion of Avalokitesvara. Interestingly, the Avalokiteshvara, a male in India, becomes female in China, changes gender, and is actually perhaps the most beloved of bodhisattvas, the bodhisattva of compassion, the one who is said to have, to be able to hear the cries of the world. I teach uh, almost every Wednesday this year in the lower hall and we have a large figure of Avalokiteshvara as a in, in, in female incarnation. And she has a thousand arms. A thousand arms and also a thousand hands with eyes in them. And it it's, could be said to represent the receptive dimension of compassion, the empathic dimension of compassion in the eyes, and the active dimension of compassion in the arms. And we need both. There's the figure of Manjushri, many of you know, with the sword, who cuts through delusion. This figure, this figure that inspires us to cut through delusion. There's Samantabhadra, the bodhisattva of enlightened action in the world. There's Kasitagarbha in India, Jiso in Japan, who is said to watch over the vulnerable, particularly travelers and children. And there's also, aside from these archetypal figures, I think the Bodhisattva also is best understood, I think, as someone very ordinary. It's someone who has this deepened heart and wisdom and ability to act and can be completely ordinary. It might be your grandmother just has this ability to act and be present and be a force for good in the world. Or it could be someone at the neighborhood store or it could be someone well-known like Gandhi or King. These are all bodhisattvas. 
my sense is that there's a way that the figure of the Bodhisattva is having tremendous resonance in our culture right now because this vision of being dedicated to both deep inner work and profound commitment to help others is, has a very, very strong pull. That's why we're here. And I, my sense is that the meaning of the Bodhisattva will just continue to expand and grow and something that can inspire us. And I think we will explore its meaning. It also has a very powerful resonance with many of the figures in many cultures. The Bodhisattva for me resonates very much with the Jewish prophets who are dedicated to work for, to create justice in the world, who have the commitment of uh, tikkun olam, many of you know that phrase, to heal and repair the world and connect it with spiritual intentions for the life of Jesus. Coming out of that tradition, out of the prophetic tradition, and I remember one passage in a book by Andrew Harvey, some of you may know his book on Jesus, and he, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, Jesus, Jesus manifests the most sublime mystical understanding with the deepest commitment to revolutionary change in one figure like that. Or we could think of the many of the indigenous shamans who go on deep inner journeys, all for the, for the sake of their communities. Or modern bodhisattvas like Gandhi or King or Dorothy Day or Cesar Chavez. In the traditional teachings, the bodhisattva can be trained. There's a discipline that we follow and there are certain trainings that the bodhisattva goes through. The bodhisattva actually develops in the classical Mahayana approach in 10 different ways. And I'll just mention them. And these are in order. Generosity, development secondly in ethics, ethical conduct. Third in patience, that is, develops to be more patient. <laughs> uh, fourth, effort or energy. Fifth, meditation. Sixth, wisdom. Seventh, skillful means, the ability to act appropriately in situations. The eighth is the deepened uh, vow or commitment, the ability to really stay with the process, to stay with the intention to awaken for the sake of others. The ninth are called powers, and have uh, the main aspect actually refers to psychic powers that are developed by the bodhisattva. And tenth, the, the sense of knowledge, the deep insight into the nature of the mind and heart and body. Effort or energy. So I don't want to talk about all 10 of them because talks with 10, a list of 10 are too hard to do. So I'm going to do five and I'm going to kind of group them together. And I think these are really um, aspects of our training and maybe you were touched and said, yes, I'm ready for Bodhisattva boot camp. <laughs> generosity, ethics, patience, effort, and so forth, I'm ready. And I think that's what we're doing here, actually, that we're developing these qualities. So I'm going to name five, 
that bring, some of them bring together some of the different dimensions and, and talk about those. And so I want to talk first about um, intention. Probably was the most mentioned in our list, clarity of intention. And I'm going to link that with the um, traditional training in vows. I'm also going to talk about patience and connect that with this quality of energy and effort. Third, I want to talk about meditation. Fourth, I want to talk about wisdom. And last, I want to talk about skillful action. And I, in doing so, I want to give some of my own stories and stories of bodhisattvas I have known or learned about. So first, intention. Intention is right at the heart of our practice in many ways. I often like to think about our entire practice as something very simple. In a way, we, moment to moment, we try to be aware of what's happening, as aware as we can. And on the basis of that mindfulness, that awareness, on the basis of our best wisdom and compassion, we set an intention to act. And then we act. So it almost has three parts. The gathering of one's mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion. Secondly, the intention that comes out of that. And thirdly, the action. So in that sense, intention is right at the center. It's also central, as many of us know, many of you know, to the whole understanding of karma. The Buddha primarily did not talk about karma in terms of if this happened in the afternoon, I must have done something wrong in the morning, <laughs> you know, or everything that's happening is because of some karma. And although he did uh, talk about that dimension, the primary way that karma was understood was in terms of intention. In the sense that it's with our intentions, moment to moment, that we are, as it were, setting in motion the future. It's with an intention to be generous, that we strengthen generosity. Intention to be mindful, that we strengthen mindfulness. Intention to be wise, that we strengthen wisdom. An intention linked with greed strengthens greed. And moment to moment, we're acting, as it were. And we're continuing to set in motion these tendencies for the future. So intention in that sense points to what we might call the quality of volition, the quality of every moment being linked with some intentions. And one of the practices that we often do in retreats, and that many of you have done, is to try to tune in to the stream of intentions uh, moment to moment in our experience. And so sometimes we give instructions that when you're ready to stand up, try to be aware with a quiet mind of the intention to rise. And it can be felt sometimes as a kind of very subtle impulse in experience. Or stand before the door and wait till you actually notice the intention and then open the door. And there's this way that that's very, very crucial. That deepened mindfulness puts us in touch to really know what the stream of intentions are. Again, with the aim of understanding that we want to support the skillful intentions 
and we want to refrain from the unskillful intentions or ones linked with greed, hatred, or delusion. And there's also another aspect of intention which is very crucial and particularly important for the bodhisattva, and that has to do with this quality of vow, or we might say the quality of aspiration. Not so much a moment-to-moment -moment arising of intentions, but more the quality of what do I want for my life? What's my aspiration? And how do I connect with my deeper intentions? And how do I keep that alive and present before me? In the teachings of the Bodhisattva, this is central. That working with intention in this way is central. And the Bodhisattva makes a vow. And some of you know these. In Zen tradition, the Bodhisattva vow is repeated almost every day in the chants. And many of you know these. Living beings are infinite. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. It's a very traditional one. And we can make our own bodhisattva vow that we can work with ourselves. A, a intention that I work with with every sitting is to vow to awaken for the sake of others. And I try to stay in touch with that. And I sometimes forget and sometimes it's a little bit rote. But it's really important. It's a practice like anything else. We can stay with that. And we can design our own version of the bodhisattva vow, make it our, our own in a way. In a book that I'll quote from a few times, one of the probably the most um, comprehensive manual. Should have had this up there too. This is the Bodhisattva Manual, and it's shorter than mine, shorter than my book. It's called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shantideva, written in the 8th century. In this book, he has his own version of the vow. He says, for as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, may I stay to dispel the misery of the world. Again, that's an 8th century expression. In a more poetic version of that, it said, for as long as space exists and living beings endure, may I be the living ground of love for all beings. It's not demanding that we have that kind of exalted sound, but it's more an intention to remember that, to move in that direction. In the Tibetan tradition, one can actually choose very consciously to take that vow to be a bodhisattva. And many of you have, have um, carried out that ceremony. It's a very special ceremony, whereas in Zen, it's a more ordinary, everyday affirmation. In Tibetan tradition, it's, there's a special gathering where one, um, and one's asked to really reflect that it's, it's actually a quite serious undertaking, not something to be taken lightly. So how to bring this um, practice of intention into daily life? One is to work with daily intentions, and, and many of us do, to really set the intention in the morning. What's my intention? Maybe to have a regular intention. Maybe some version, your own, of the bodhisattva vow. And to stay with that. You might check in with it twice a day. It's really to the intentions work, much as they do in our own um, focus on intentions and developing our guidelines, 
it helps us bring us back to what we really want, what our, what our deeper aspirations are. That's what that, and so this daily practice, even if we say it and a half hour later we're on the freeway cursing at a driver, we've done it. <laughs> we've, we've said the vow and it has an effect. It has an effect if we do that regularly. And maybe it brings us back from that a little quicker. It, ha it has an effect. We can also do activities before, ac um, intentions before activities. That is, we can, I often, before meetings, I set an intention. Actually, what a lot of what I do at meetings is I actually write my intentions on a sheet of paper and put it right in front of me on a desk and on a, a table or whatever, and people can't see it necessarily. And I have the intentions there, and I'm looking at it. You know, um, it might be intention to be mindful during this meeting, and I'm sitting there, and sometimes I actually write down uh, using mindfulness what's happening. You know, it's like, you know, present, aware of my body, and maybe a little later, later in the meeting, getting tired, noticing sarcastic thoughts developing. And it's the noticing of that which gives me the freedom actually not to go right there. It's tremendously powerful, right? And, and that working with intention very concretely can help that come more to mindfulness and I don't act it out. So it's big. It's, very, it's a big, it's a practice, but it's very simple. All we need to do is just do it. Do it before activities. I think when we often have a moment of silence before meals, it's something like an intention practice also. Grace is a kind of intention practice. As Adrian was saying last night, when we do metta, metta is almost an entirely, an in, it's an intention practice. We're intending, as it were, the heart to open. And that's a really important point, as Adrian expressed it, that metta or loving kindness is inclining ourselves in certain direction with intentions. Loving kindness practice is not a production on demand practice. You will be loving, Donald. You know, that actually is not very loving, right? that it's actually an intention practice where we, where we invite that quality to be present, but we don't demand it. So intention is this first quality, intention linked with vows, linked with aspiration. The second aspect I want to talk about is particularly the quality of patience. And it's said to be specifically related to being able to be present and balanced when difficult states of mind and heart or difficult situations arise. The Buddha did not include in his list of difficulties being around group process. But <laughs> many of us can relate to that. <laughs> that it takes, it takes patience, right? It takes patience and hopefully we learn something, that there's the quality of being able to stay balanced, a lot dependent on mindfulness, being able to see what's there. So it's really to look at patience as a way to work with, um, with difficult states and to develop more and more that capacity to be with, with both with difficult states and also I think it has aspects of commitment. Patience has the points to the ability to stay with an activity stay balanced, stay energetic, really, um, really continue to work with situations, even when they're challenging moments. 
the Buddha talks in one of his teachings, which I think we'll want to explore more, he gives the teaching called the teaching of the eight worldly winds. And these are precisely what make patience difficult. The eight worldly winds or the eight worldly conditions, lokadama, are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. We could take that as our focus of our practice for the next six months, right? One could desire that. So if you haven't filled out your individualized learning plan yet and want to focus on the eight worldly winds, it would be, it's a powerful practice that we see how we get attached to, to things being pleasant and not unpleasant, how we get attached to gain and not loss, how we get attached to fame or good reputation, and we want to push away disrepute. It's very, very deep in our being, this conditioning, or to praise and blame. I think we know that. It's very, and so partly what we work with is the noticing with mindfulness these, when these conditions arise and notice what our reactions are. And that's why, again, the, the mindfulness practice and the, the, the different practices to develop clear seeing are so crucial. Shanti Deva, in his text, says that patience is especially developed with difficult people, or so-called difficult people, or difficult people for me, we should say. There are no objectively difficult people, right? <laughs> there are people, huh? But some, some would disagree. <laughs> uh, this is what Shanti Deva says about difficult people, so-called. He actually, his language is actually, uh, uh, he uses the word enemies. My opponents, my enemies, people who are very hard for me to be with. He says, just like treasure, he's saying this about enemies, opponents, just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy for my enemy assist me in my conduct of awakening. It's in the chapter on patience. Someone asked for citations. Chapter 6, verse 107. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Stephen Batchelor translation. Okay. So there's also the quality of uh, commitment, I think, and committed continuous energy. Again, very challenging, but right at the heart of what we're doing in this program. This, this quality of being able to keep persevering through all the ups and downs, having a kind of consistency, uh, no matter what happens. And I want to just mention a few stories that helped me with this. And actually, the, um, I want to tell a story about both my father and my mother. Uh, some of you know this, but probably not too many. But there's, um, my father died about a year and a half ago, and there's a bench down in the courtyard with his name on it. And I love doing retreats here because I go down typically after tea when there's no one around, and I sit on the bench, and I commune with him in certain ways and talk and uh, see what happens, really. And on the bench, we have in loving memory Simon Rothberg, and we give the dates. And we have a line from his own words that um, he wrote for me. He wrote when I, when I uh, got a doctorate, actually. And he, he said that he passed on, he gave me actually a nameplate which said Dr. Rothberg. <laughs> and he, on the bottom of it, and he actually, that, this was um, 
in the 1980s. And he, at that time, he was um, close to, he was legally blind actually, could just write a little bit. He was blind the last 25 years of his life. And he, so the handwriting wavers, but he did write it. And we put this on the, the bench. It said, I pass on this nameplate for him, which he had had, he was a scientist, that he had on his laboratory saying Dr. Rothberg. And he said, this has always reminded me of my continuous pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom. And so on the bench, and I go down there, and sometimes I go down, I'm in a retreat, I'm kind of tired, and I see the continuous pursuit of truth, knowledge, and wisdom, I get perked up. <laughs> I really get energized, because there's something, it just, no matter what, it just reminds me, oh yes, it's, I think it's that quality of patience and commitment. It gets activated just by reading one line, and I think each of us have something like that. And I was also thinking of my, um, my mother also, who in the 1970s and some of the 80s worked in the Richmond, Virginia school system. And she worked on what's now called diversity work. She was the ombudsperson, at that time it was called the ombudsperson for race relations within the Richmond public school system. And she would lead retreats and they would, you know, Richmond was almost entirely with, um, African-American and people of European background or, or blacks and whites. And she also was involved with um, politics in Richmond primarily. And she said sometimes that she worked really, really, really hard and things basically stayed the same. And she kept on working, but she said, if I didn't do what I did, things would get worse. And there was that sense of commitment and a certain equanimity about that. I'm sure there was a lot of hardship. I mean, you work hard, you want something, and you're just working to keep things from not getting worse. It's, it's challenging. I think that's this quality of patience and, and commitment. The Czech playwright uh, Václav Havel, who, um, who became president of Czechoslovakia, and he worked, as, you, as many of you know, as an activist for many years. And really, I, I would say, as a kind of spiritual activist, very much a bodhisattva, and was imprisoned for many years. And he wrote this before the end of the communist regime. He distinguished between what he called hope and optimism. He said optimism was more shallow, the way he was defining it. Optimism was more shallow and was based on needing events to be a certain way, and hope was more a deeper quality of this patience and commitment. This is what he said. The kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. It is a dimension of the soul and is not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, regardless of how it turns out. It's a powerful quality, right? This quality of patience and commitment. So intention, patience, commitment, second, the third is meditation, and this is one of the traditional trainings of the Bodhisattva. And it's 
seems to me really clear that someone who is following this path of engagement for connecting inner and outer transformation has to have a regular practice, has to have a regular way of working with the mind and heart, has to have a way to continue to develop the openness of heart, the clarity of seeing, the ability to be with challenging um, situations. And that practice initially is something that we work with on the cushion or in some other kind of practice. And for us, there are many kinds of practices. Although we're particularly taking mindfulness and metta as kind of some common denominators, but there are many practices that we have here. And we practice in a kind of simplified situation and we learn certain things that we then bring out into and bring out into the world. We learn better how to be with anger on the cushion. And then we're better able to be with anger and be skillful with it in various ways when we're in the world. And that's why I think for someone who is on this bodhisattva path, the regular practice and even the practice of retreats is very crucial to have this back and forth movement The historian Toynbee said that it was characteristic of people who had had a great spiritual impact on the world that there was always a cycle of withdrawal and return. Continual cycles of going for further nourishment, further stability, and so forth, and then coming back and enacting. The qualities of mindfulness and metta are particularly related to the two main forms of meditation in the Buddhist tradition, which are some kind of insight practice, a clear seeing practice, and the opening of the heart practice. And these are in a way also related to what, I, what I'm thinking of as two aspects of our meditation practice. One of them has to do with going more deeply, seeing more clearly, clearly our experience, And a lot of it actually has to do with being with difficult states, with going into difficult parts of our experience. And I think I've got clearer about this in the last three years. I've had a a kind of unexpectedly a particular focus in working with people on what we could call harsh negative reactive judgments, whether of oneself or others or politicians or certain uh, public figures or whatever, that... Um, what I have found in my, in my own practice, and I think I'm only doing this because it's something I've worked with a lot myself as, a, as someone who was conditioned to be quite judgmental as a way of finding clarity and safety and you know, a moral stance on the world. Um, and it's a very crucial issue for our program. So I, I want to have us Personally, I'd love to have us focus on it as it manifests in terms of our action. And what I found in my own practice and in working with people, that there were actually two aspects that are really crucial. And they're related to what I've heard from other people. The first aspect was cultivating a mindfulness with the judgments. And I think this would be actually true of most of the difficult, challenging states, whether we work with fear or anger or grief or um, confusion that there is a way in which part of our practice is to go deeply with our mindfulness and our wisdom into the phenomenon, to see clearly, to be with it. And a lot of that's pretty hard. 
It's hanging out a lot of times with a certain amount of pain. Certainly what I found in my, the work with judgments was that there was a way that certain kinds of clear discernments or observations were linked in a subterranean way with my unresolved or unacknowledged pain. And so the work of transforming judgments had to do with freeing up the discernment and the insight and working through the reactivity and the pain. And I think this is the core way that we work with a lot of difficult emotions. And, and so it, but it took actually, with the judgments, actually hanging out a lot with the pain that was there, which would sometimes go into sadness or grief or anger. And sometimes that was really hard work. You know, you can imagine that certain judgment that I might have, you know, some of the harsh ones, like for many of us, we have some strong self-judgment that I'm not worthy or that I'm um, somehow flawed, that there's really something problematic about me, which I think is often cultivated in families and in our culture. And as I go into that, I have to be able to touch that deep kind of pain in which I think that of myself a lot of which comes from a very young age, you know, two, three, four, and gets solidified in certain ways. I have to be able to touch that and go into that. And what I have found in doing that work is that that deepened mindfulness of practice has to be complemented by a way of opening to the loving heart, to happiness, to joy, to beauty. There's a kind of complementary process. and. Uh, I asked Trinity if I could uh, talk about some of what she um, shared in the, um, in the group. And she said it was okay. And she talked about how, in a way, 15 years of stabilizing happiness were necessary, which is exactly the second aspect, before being able to act. And, and there was also, I'm sure, the, that quality of being able to go into the painful parts. And that happened maybe before that. So it's helpful to think of our meditation practice as having those complementary wings, very much expressed in the complementary nature of mindfulness and metta. And, and it's often helpful to ask, um, particularly when we're dealing with difficult things, do I need more balance? Do I need more stability? Do I need more resources? Because just being hanging out in what's painful is not helpful if we're not balanced and able to see clearly. It can, it can as it were, re-traumatize us or um, not be so helpful. And so it's, it's that quality of also being present with the, with the beauty, with the, um, with the joy that we find in ourselves, being with nature and so forth. Very, very crucial. The fourth quality is wisdom. The ability to see clearly, to see ourselves clearly, to see the world clearly. And I want to talk about a few aspects of wisdom. We could have a whole evening on wisdom, but just a, four, a few aspects. One of the traditional ways that wisdom is unpacked is by seeing it as involving an understanding of the Four Noble Truths in Buddhist tradition. That is, to understand suffering, to understand the cause of suffering, and a kind of compulsive grasping or clinging, or you might say a compulsive pushing away, that compulsive reactivity of our being. And then to also, thirdly, to have some 
sense, some degree of realization of the possibility of peace, both in, a, in some deep way, but also it can be as simple as the noticing that at a meeting, I'm really getting attached to the agenda and just letting go and relaxing and letting things be what they are. That's working with the Four Noble Truths. It doesn't have to be some cosmic revelation. It can just be, again, driving on the freeway and starting to yell at a driver and just say, oh yes, the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> and, then, and then, I don't know, wave or something, I don't know. But it, so it's very, very ordinary to work with the Four Noble Truths. Very, it's just really noticing, grasping, or clinging, or some reactivity in the moment, and learning how to let go, how to let go of that. Another aspect that's particularly important for us in this program is the clear seeing of causes and conditions. Very, very crucial for people who are intervening socially, Part of wisdom means to have a clear understanding of causes and conditions. To see, and this is where um, I have an interest um, in what we sometimes call Buddhist-based social analysis, of, of spiritually-based social analysis, of really being able to see what's happening in a historical situation or in an immediate local situation and having a good understanding. So that means that um, bodhisattvas have to read studies and reports, and study conditions, and study history, and study the history of social movements, and the history of uh, what's worked and what hasn't, and study strategies and techniques, and have a sense of what might be appropriate in the situation from knowing the history. It's very crucial. Dr. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka, who has visited a number of times, and I interviewed him for my book, and I've known him for about 15 years, probably the most developed expression of Buddhist social action that's existed on the planet. Living in Sri Lanka, the network that he started of Sorvodaya has extended to 12,000 villages. Can you imagine an organization throughout the country in 12,000 villages played a very major role in responding to the tsunami and also a very crucial role in helping to end the civil war in Sri Lanka. He said in looking at the situation there that it was important to see things with a long view, to see things, he said, it's at least necessary to have a 500-year plan to deal with the situation. And he actually has one. It's on their website. A 500-year plan, he said, the conditions that led to this, colonialism and so forth, took 500 years to develop. Do we think we're going to unravel it in five years or in two years? And so he's very precise. And again, it connects with this quality of patience. And so he, he outlines the different steps that need to be taken in the 500 years. It's like, you know, um, just end the fighting. Stabilize that first few years. You know, start to develop reconciliation projects. Another 10 years. <laughs> you know, and it, I think it's, you know, start to uh, rebuild some of the economy and so forth. And, you know, it's only after 
50 or 75 years that you start actually going into the most beautiful aspects of developing a dharmic culture and so forth. So it's a very, um, for me, very inspiring. And there's also urgency. Having a long view doesn't mean you're not urgent. And that's crucial. Another quality of wisdom is a familiarity with paradox. Very crucial. Was actually, we were actually talking with Yarrow after the morning, and she was saying that uh, it's often helpful, and we're gonna, I think we'll explore this further, it's often helpful to explore uh, group guidelines in terms of balancing between two members of a polarity. Like you can have a polarity like uh, having a really strong leader, or you can have the polarity of empowering the group or community. And they're kind of a polarity. We're going to have a polarity between being really relaxed and being really strict. And a lot of the guidelines are having really clear boundaries around meditation or being really relaxed. And it's helpful to name them because it seems it's a way of um, being more clear. But it also, I think, has a quality of um, inviting a sense of paradox, a sense that uh, it's not going to fit totally together in one clear package, so relax. You know, that there's a way that it gets a little um, interesting and can be expressed in ways that are um, sometimes the mind resists. So I'll just give two expressions. One, one is from uh, the Hindu teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj. He says this about wisdom, or he actually says this about the whole practice. He says, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. Or another expression of this in relation to wisdom comes from a book that some of you may know who's from a good friend of mine who lives a few blocks away in Berkeley named Ruth Gendler. Does anyone know her book called The Book of Qualities? Yeah, this is her what the book is, an amazing book, and I'll try to bring it in. And she just came out with a book on beauty, by the way. It just came, came out like a week ago. And in the book of qualities, she personifies about 50 or 60 emotions, states of mind, and heart. She gives, the, and she draws, she's a, a painter, so she draws them. So they all have these images, and they look a certain way. And this is, this is wisdom. Wisdom wears an indigo jacket. She takes long walks in the purple hills at twilight, pausing to meditate at an old temple near the crossroads. She was sick as a young child, so she learned to be alone with herself at an early age. Wisdom has a quiet mind. She likes to think about the edges where things spill into each other and become their opposites. She knows how to look at things inside and out. Sometimes her eyes go out to the things she is looking at and sometimes the things she is looking at enter through her eyes. Questions of time, depth, and balance interest her. She is not looking for answers. And the last aspect of wisdom is knowing the deeper dimensions of our being. It's knowing the qualities more and more of the awakened mind and heart in the teachings of the Buddha, the Anguttara Nikaya, 
it said this way, luminous is this mind and heart brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This, those who do not practice, do not understand. Luminous is this mind and heart brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way really understands. For that person, there is cultivation of mind and heart to touch that luminosity, to touch the quality of this deep sense of awareness. In the Tibetan tradition, in the Dzogchen tradition, it's said by a teacher, Nyosho Ken, intrinsic awareness itself is the absolute guru, the ultimate truth, by resting naturally beyond fixation in that inherently free and perfect, innate Bodhi mind, I take refuge and actualize the thought of awakening. So there's that remembrance of awakening and that touching of it. And the last quality I want to mention is the quality of skillful action. Bodhisattvas act. They act in different ways, but there's always some kind of skillful action. And I want to mention something that's been very important to me about action, which comes from Joanna Macy. She says that in our time, there's a kind of great turning that's happening in many ways. And to really transform the world takes three kinds of action. And we don't all do each, all three of them, but we find where our gifts lie. She says the first is what she calls holding actions in defense of the earth, for holding actions that prevent further damage. And a lot of protest and trying to stop wars is of this category. The second, she says, is creating alternative institutions. Understanding our institutions and creating alternatives. Very crucial. Many of us here and work with hospice or medicine or education or law are doing that. And she said the third is changing the very nature of perception of the individual. And so someone who is teaching yoga and teaching people a different relationship to their bodies is doing part of what is necessary for transformation. When I've worked with that model in teaching retreats, especially for activists, there's a kind of a relief hearing that. I don't have to do everything. You know, I can see where my gifts are, and the key is to know that the person who is teaching yoga can bring in the way that we have these fixated views of our bodies based on social conditioning and can be linked up with the person who is preventing further damage, that is connection. One of the aspects of skillful action is courage. And I want to mention something which has really stayed with me that I learned from my friend uh, Thich Minh Duc, uh, the Vietnamese monk who is part of this program. He said that during the Vietnam War, of course, they don't call it the Vietnam War. They call it the American War, <laughs> uh, actually. Um, he said that the Vietnamese Buddhists felt a need to modify this very traditional model of the Dharma having these two aspects of wisdom and compassion. And they said it's not enough. 
we need a third aspect of the path. And they said, that's courage. It has to do with action. That just the wisdom and compassion without action, without that courage, they said was not enough. And so they actually modified this very traditional model and had these three aspects, very significant, I think. And it's a kind of action that is um, very ordinary and also can be on a larger scale. I'll just close with two very short vignettes. One of them is about this quality of skillful action, and it comes from a Zen teacher. He was asked, what is the nature of enlightenment? And he actually did not answer, realizing the luminous emptiness of the mind and, and so forth. And he didn't answer in the usual language, even that you have in Zen. He said, the essence of awakening is appropriate response. The essence of awakening is appropriate response. And some might hear that and be a little disappointed. You know, I wanted the great depths of the heart and mind. But it, if you think about it, it's actually um, quite powerful. It's a moment to moment teaching, but it also goes quite deeply. And then lastly, I want to end with another story about Dr. Ari Ratney and about their work to end the Civil War, which I think shows some of the possibilities of skillful action. Dr. Ari Ratney and the organization Sarvodaya were very deeply involved in trying to stop the Civil War, which started in the early 1980s in Sri Lanka and had led to, has led to about 65,000 people being killed in that, in that civil war between the minority Tamils of the north and the Sinhalese majority. A lot of civil rights issues and oppression issues. And Dr. Ari Ratney was, was very involved with the justice dimensions as well as trying just to stop the actual fighting. And he found as he was exploring that there were tools that started to be very, um, that just sort of came into being. And one of them was having large um, meditation gatherings that would bring out people. And he started um, working with that in the late 90s he said that when you have enough people, it, it shifts the collective consciousness. And one of his gatherings for peace and justice, bringing people together for meditation in the late 90s, 1999, had brought, had brought together uh, one of them, 200,000 people meditating together and, and talking about justice. After the ceasefire that occurred in 2002, um, Sarvodaya and Dr. Ari Ratni wanted to they helped stabilize the ceasefire. And so they called for a further meetings and gatherings, uh, what they called a Maha Shanti Samadhi Day. That means a day of great peace meditation. And they uh, held it at a sacred city of uh, Anura Pandata, or let's see, uh, yeah, Anura Dapura, located near some of the fighting. And when the day came, 
they, uh, it seemed that there were going to be a, large, a very massive number of people. And eventually, it was estimated that 650,000 people came. And I want to just end with a description of that event from Joanna Macy, who was a witness there. I arrived at Anura Dapura on the day of the meditation. The sacred site, probably half a mile in diameter, contains several great stupas and the world's most ancient Bodhi tree, grown from, grown from a cutting taken from the tree that sheltered the Buddha during his enlightenment, brought to Sri Lanka by King Ashoka's daughter, Sakyadita. When I got there, people were streaming in from all directions. In the tradition of these events, everyone was dressed in white and moving in silence. They had arrived from all over the country on foot and on trains, bicycles, and according to one person's count, 4,000 buses. The meditation ceremony took place at 3 p.m. Members of the clergy of all the religions of Sri Lanka were gathered on a platform and each said a few words. In front of them, on a slightly lower stage, surrounded by flowers, was Dr. Aryaratni. After the spoken prayers, he began to lead us all in anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out. The silence was the most exquisite sound I have ever heard. It was the sound of 650,000 people being quiet together in the biggest meditation ever held on planet Earth. I said to myself, this is the sound of bombs not exploding of landmines not going off, of machine guns not firing. This is possible. So let's just sit for a minute. So the last words of that report were, this is possible. Thank you. This talk was given by Donald Rothberg at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 28, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.
donate.